0: Okay, right. I think everybody likes a quiz, right? Everybody likes a quiz, so we are going to start this morning's sermon with a who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire type question, okay? Have we got that? Here we go. Right, here we go. Here, are, here is the question. Which famous novel um, made, later made into a Hollywood movie in the 1930s? Did Lyman Frank Baum write? Okay, this is one of those, like, million-dollar questions. You either know it or you don't. Does anyone think they know, okay, which novel written by Lyman Frank Baum was made into a Hollywood movie? Was it Gone with the Wind? Anyone going for Gone with the Wind? Or oh, we've got one. Or we've got a few for Gone with the Wind. Um, B, was it King Kong? Anyone going for King Kong? Oh, just one lone voice going for King Kong. <laughs> Um, C, anyone think it is The Wizard of Oz? Anyone going... Oh, we've got a few more for that one. Anyone think it was that lovely Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Well, that looks like the most popular option, which I'm glad because it's wrong. The, the answer is... Dun, 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 C, The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Frank uh, Baum wrote The Wizard of Oz. Now listen, the reason why I'm telling you this is that one of the things that a lot of people don't know about The Wizard of Oz is that it has a deeper, hidden meaning. There is a message hidden under the surface of The Wizard of Oz. You see, you watch the film and you think it's just an innocent children's fantasy about a girl who's trapped in a strange land who's trying to get home Oh, no, 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 that is not what it's about. When uh, Lyman Frank Bohm wrote this, he actually wrote it as a political message about American politics in the 1890s, right? Who knew? Um, it was first written around the time of the Great Depression. And actually, at that time, there was an economic policy called the gold standard. And the gold standard is basically where the value of the dollar a, a country had. And this story is a critique of that, and every single little element of it means something economically, politically, socially. Okay? Let me just give you a couple to show you what I mean. Dorothy represents the average American citizen who is simple and naive and doesn't have a clue what's going on. Okay? The scarecrow represents farmers who have no brains (laughs) and aren't smart enough to know their own interests. No offense to any farmers in in the room. The the rusty and heartless Tin Man um, is the factory workers who don't care about other people. They don't have any heart. The Cowardly Lion is politicians who have no integrity or strength of conviction. The wizard is a picture of the president who is looked up to everybody but is actually a fake. And of course, the yellow brick road is an image of the gold standard that promises much but fails to deliver. Every single element of the Wizard of Oz has a deeper message about American politics. Uh, And the reason why I'm telling you this is because, you know, sometimes... The Bible does exactly the same thing. It takes a story that seems to have a surface level meaning, and we actually come to see that there is a deeper, more profound meaning under the surface that often needs to be revealed to us. Now, listen to Luke's Gospel, where Jesus tells us this very clearly. Listen to Luke 24, he said to them, This is what I told you when I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Where? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus says to his disciples, You know know the stories. You know the plot lines. You know the history of your nation. But what you have never appreciated until this very moment is that all of those things, all of those events, all of those stories are all pointing to a climax, which is my coming into the world to die upon the cross. And it says he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Do you see the significance of that, right? Here were these men who would have been schooled in the scriptures from infancy. Here were men who would have been taught this stuff in the synagogue. Here are men, by the way, they didn't have scrolls, they didn't have books. Back in those days, if they wanted to learn the scriptures, they learnt it off by heart. It was in their heads. They knew the stories. They knew the events. They knew the plot lines. And yet Jesus comes and says, you need a mind-opening revelation of the deeper truths that are taught in this scripture. And Jesus says to them, and this, this is it, this is it, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. I am the climax of the story. When we read the Old Testament, everything that is going on is about the role, the mission, the identity the kingdom, the destiny, the death, the resurrection, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know when Paul was writing to one of the churches, he explained this in this way. He said, I have become its, that's the gospel's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you, listen to this, the word of God in its fullness. You know, th- there are layers There are layers of understanding. There are layers of meaning. And Paul says, you know, I have become a preacher of the gospel to give you to the top, to give you the fullness of the revelation because the fullness has now come. And he says it's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The word mystery That Paul uses here means something that was once hidden but has now been brought out into the open and Paul says this mystery it's glorious and it's rich and you know what it is do you want to know what this glorious mystery is he tells us it's Christ in you the hope of glory and so if all that is true And we then find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12. What we see here on the surface is a people who are oppressed in slavery and they can't release themselves. You heard last week from Al that that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened and he's hardened his own heart and he's not going to let them go. And so God brings the plagues and the plagues are God's intervention of grace. The plagues are God's solution. The the plagues is about God breaking them free from their, their slavery into liberty. And it's a sober message that there is judgment, that there is judgment to come. And the only way to escape that judgment is to trust in the sacrificial blood of a lamb on your doors. And Jesus says to his disciples, everything that is written in Moses is written about me. And you know, there are verses in the New Testament that that really show us that the disciples got this and they understood the significance of it. Let me just show you a few others. 1 Peter 1 verse 9 says, You know it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ. What does he say? A lamb without blemish or defect. And Peter is saying, you know, you remember back in Exodus when they were to take a lamb and it had to be a perfect lamb, a lamb without any faults. And Peter says, do you understand that that is a picture of the perfection of Jesus Paul, being even more explicit about it, in 1 Corinthians 5, in verse 7, says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He very explicitly says, everything that you know about the Passover story, this is a picture. And you will remember when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized at the beginning of his ministry. And John saw him coming in the distance and he said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know, my job is so simple today. So simple. It's to point you to him. It's to call you again to look at him, to trust in him. To rest by faith in the work that he has done for you. To understand and open up your heart again to the truth that he is the sacrifice who offered his life to pay the price that we could never pay. So let's have a look at Exodus chapter 12 and see how each element of this story points us to Jesus and points us to the basics of the gospel. We're in Exodus 12, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron. Actually, I'd like to stop there. Do you notice immediately? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron. You read through this chapter And what you see is that actually it is full of commands and instructions and imperatives. It says things like, tell them to. It says things like, you must do this. It says, you are to. And even sometimes it says, you are not to. And you know, it seems to me that if this is about Jesus... And if this is about how we are to be saved, then I think the key truth that is at the beginning of here, that we have to recognize and we have to acknowledge, is that Moses didn't make up the Passover. You know, this isn't his clever idea. You know, salvation is not about us sitting down and saying, well, what works for me? What rites and rituals are going to float my boat Salvation, you know, is not DIY religion. It's not horses for courses. That's not how it works. God is the sovereign king of the universe and of salvation. And he lays down how it is we are to be saved. And we are not at liberty to make these things up for ourselves. You know, we don't create a personalized ticket to heaven. You know, we don't invent a personal ceremony or ritual. The Bible declares to us through this passage and then through the rest of the scriptures that there is only one way to be saved. And that's why over and over again, the Bible says things like the Lord said, that there are exclusive absolute claims that are centered on the person and the work of Jesus. Perhaps one of the best-known ones of these, which really summarizes it better than any other, is Acts 4, verse 12, where Peter, speaking to a crowd, says this, salvation is found in no one else. He says there is no other name, Under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I think it's worth remembering this morning again that it's only through Jesus that we are saved. And I want to say to you this morning, this afternoon, if you are not a Christian and you're asking yourself the question today, how can I get right with God? How can I know that my sins can be forgiven? How can I know that I can be assured that when I die that there is a place in heaven for me? Then listen again to what Moses says and also what Peter says. Salvation is found in no one else. The only safe place is blood of the Lamb. I wonder if you notice in verse 2. It says, this month is for you the first month, the first month of your year. So it's almost as if God says to Moses, I'm going to initiate this blood ceremony with you today. And I want you to make this the start of your month, the start of your year. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, this is for you a defining moment. This is your identity. This is where the rhythm of your life finds its center and its meaning. This is the stake in the ground that makes sense of time and place and destiny and hope. The first month of the year, you start your year with the blood of the Lamb. And again, can I suggest to you that if this is a picture of trusting in Jesus and of being a Christian, then... Isn't our conversion described as being born again? It's a a new beginning. Aren't we described as being a new creation? Isn't becoming a Christian described as being resurrection, life from the dead? If this Passover is pointing to Jesus, and if Jesus is the lamb, and if this Passover represents the beginning of their year, I think in a very simple way, God is saying this to us. You are to orientate everything you are, your destiny, your purpose, your life, your rhythms, to Jesus. That's the calling that is upon our lives as his followers, to orientate everything that we are. This is the first month of the beginning of your year. This is a new start You are a new creation. Orientate everything you are to Jesus. By the way, if you look at verse 14 for a moment, where we get to the end of this little section, you also see it says, This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. It is to be a lasting ordinance, it says in verse 14. Do you see what, what this means? You know, whatever is happening here, what, whatever this is about, whatever this is picturing and pointing to, God says to them, this is not something. Remember this because it is weighty and it is significant. You are to never let this slip from your mind and your heart and your life and your worship and your rhythm. Jesus is to be at the center of everything. So let's have a look at what these verses tell us about the lamb who is to be sacrificed. Look at verses 5 to 7. It says, The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Year-old males without defect. Do you know, it had to be a perfect animal in the prime of its life. It couldn't be a female. It couldn't be an old goat. It had to be less than a year old. And you know, I think this points to the fact that when Jesus came and when he gave his life upon the cross, it was in the prime of his manhood that he gave his back to be lashed. It was in the prime of his adulthood that he gave his hands to be crucified. And I think, again, in a very simple way, I think this is God saying to us, I have given you my best. I have given you my best. Do you notice it also says it is to be a lamb without defect. You know, it couldn't be a lamb with a dodgy eye or a broken leg or a bent ear. It had to be perfect. It had to be the best. And again, I think God is saying to us through this, that when I give you my son as a sacrifice of atonement for you, I am giving you my perfect, sinless son. The one who will come to carry the weight of the sins of the world is one who never committed any. And Hebrews 4 tells us this very clearly, that it says, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. You know, only a perfect lamb could save them. And I want you to know, friends, this morning, that only a perfect sinless man is able to atone for your sins and there is only one who has ever been qualified to do that and that is our perfect savior jesus christ verse 6 tells us you know that the lamb was to be brought into the home listen to this take care of them until the 14th day of the month. And you know, if you're going to bring it into your home, and if it's going to live with you for a period of time, then it's been set apart for that purpose. You know, the lamb has come into the house, and everybody knows that that lamb is there because it is going to be slaughtered, and it is going to be killed. Do you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus... The Lamb of God was set apart to be our saviour. Not just for a few days. But listen to this. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Have you ever thought of what that means, church? Have you ever considered the impact, the weight of that verse? That even before there was a world even before there was an atom, a day, a moment, even before you ever existed, in eternity past, God foreknew you and he loved you and he made a covenant with his son in heaven when there was just the Trinity and nothing else. And he said, I will go and be the sacrificial lamb for those that I love. You know, God's love for you stretches from eternity to eternity. As the son stretches out his hands on the cross, God's love for you is stretched out from eternity to eternity. Can I stir up some assurance in you this morning? Can I stir up some hope And some joy in you this morning by reminding you that God's love for you is eternal and everlasting. Before you ever did a thing, he loved you and committed to die for you. Verse 6 says, the lamb is to be slaughtered at twilight. You know, the lamb had to be slaughtered. The lamb had to die. And at the heart of this is the doctrine of what we call substitution. You know, God does not sweep our sins under the carpet. God is just and sin must be paid for. And if we are to know liberty and freedom and peace and hope for our sins, something must die and be sacrificed in our place. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus came into this world willingly, lovingly, eternally, that he might be your sacrificial lamb. Listen to how Peter describes it. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Listen to this. He himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He was slaughtered for you. Again, can I stir up some assurance in you this morning? Can I stir up in your hearts some love, some adoration, some worship to him, that he willingly was slaughtered for you. And you know, the next little detail of this is so specific that it tells us that God's sovereign hand was over these events and that he is the king of the universe. Listen to this. Verse 6 says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So in the darkness of the plague, on the 14th of Nisan, the lamb was to be slaughtered. And it tells us it was very specifically to be at twilight. Do you know the word twilight literally means the middle of the two evenings. So it's in the middle of the point of noon when the sun is at its highest and the point where the sun sets. The middle point between noon and sunset is around three o'clock in the afternoon. And Moses was told that on the 14th of Nisan, at three o'clock, this is to be your Passover. Listen to this. This is incredible. Listen to what Matthew says about this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. And about three in the afternoon, twilight, Jesus cried out in a shaken me. And when he had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At three in the afternoon, Jesus was slaughtered for us. But listen to what John says. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. The work is done. The price is paid. The debt is covered. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation. Do you see what the two gospel writers are saying to us here? That Jesus died on the cross on the 14th of Nisan, on the day of Passover, and he gave up his spirit as an offering for sin at twilight, at three in the afternoon. God sovereignly determines all the events that they would align so that we would see that God has an eternal unchanging unbreakable plan of salvation and that he wants to love you and save you and the precision of it is none less than what we would expect of our God amen well there's more there's more have a look at verse 7 it says the blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled on the doorposts. Then they are to take some of the blood, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. You know, this is an act of faith. This is where our involvement of this becomes a reality. You know, the Passover is a picture of what it means to become a Christian, because on a logical level. There is no reason why the blood of a dead animal on your doorposts is going to somehow protect you from the judgment of God. It is ridiculous, except for the fact that this is God's command, and God does not lie. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says about this. By faith, remember faith is the substance of things unseen. You know, he didn't know you know we know the end of the story he didn't know by faith he kept the passover and the sprinkling of blood you know our role in all of this is to trust and to lean in with all that we are with all of our energy with all of our conviction to understand that when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It really was finished. The work was done. The price was paid. That is our role in this. By faith, trusting, resting. Do you know, becoming a Christian is just putting the blood, not on your door frames, but over your life. Over your heart. Over your failures. Over your weaknesses and trusting that when he said it is finished it really is finished verse 8 says that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire do you know in the bible fire is always symbolic of judgment can i just show you a couple of verses to see this Psalm 89 says, how long will your wrath burn like fire? Lamentations 2 verse 4 says, he has poured out his wrath like fire. And Moses is told very precisely that the lamb is not to be boiled, it is to be consumed. This is a picture that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place, that the intense fire of God's judgment burned upon him. Do you notice that we are to eat the meat roasted over the fire? And I wonder whether that's a picture that we are to feed by faith upon his work, that we are to be nourished by it, we are to be strengthened by it. We are to participate. We are to walk in it. We are to find strength in it. You know, if you feed upon something, you have to experience it. You can't be a spectator. Can I say to you this morning, if you are not a Christian, you cannot be a spectator of the things of God. You must partake. You must enjoy. You must feed upon the Lamb. And for those of you who are believers, if you want to be sustained in this life, if you want to have the strength of God to walk through this world, you need to be feeding upon the lamb. Do you notice also just a couple of other things before we finish? Verse 8 says the lamb was to be eaten with bitter herbs. You know, bitter herbs lead a bad taste in your mouth. And I think God wants us to know that when the lamb is sacrificed and we feed upon him by faith, that we are to reflect in our hearts, that we are to taste the bitterness of our sins and our brokenness and our failure and our rebellion. That there is a place in Christian discipleship for reflecting on who we are and what we have done. And recognizing that those things led him to the cross. There is a bitterness in the gospel. There is a bittersweet joy. We we celebrate that he saved us. But we remember and we reflect on those things that took him there. Do you also notice it says you are to eat bread without yeast. Do you know yeast in the Bible... Is always a picture of sin and how sin spreads. Listen to what Paul says about this, 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is no good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Can I say to you that there is a cost in being a disciple of Jesus? Salvation is free, but it costs everything. There is a brokenness of spirit as we realize what we have done that has led, us, led him to the cross. But there is a call upon our lives to remove the yeast from the bread. We are the bread, the yeast is our sin. There is a call upon us that if we are going to take part, if we are going to participate in the blood of the Lamb, that something has to change. That we have to crucify the flesh. We have to put the self to death. We have to pursue holiness with rigor and conviction. There is a cost to discipleship. And I think in the Passover, God wants the Israelites to know that there's a cost. Know the bitterness. Know the cost. Turn away from that old life. Become a new person. And then finally, one more thing. Do you notice that in verse 11, they are to eat the Passover packed and ready to leave? Tin to your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You know, for them, eating the Passover was the severing of their bondage to Egypt. That it was a start of a pilgrimage. It was a start of a new life, a new kingdom, a new reality. And I just want to remind us as we finish this morning that for us to be Christians means that too, in some way, we have to be packed and ready to go. It means that we are pilgrimages. We're pilgrims in this world. We are just passing through. We live in the world, but we don't love it. We don't invest fully in it. We hold it lightly. This is the cost of discipleship. We are just passing through to a better kingdom. So listen, what do we take from this? Hopefully you've seen this morning that the Passover pictures... Many of the central, foundational, unchanging truths of the gospel. What are they? That salvation is from God, from first to last, revealed to Him in grace. That we are saved by the sacrificial substitution of Jesus, who is the Lamb. Faith that we are to rest in Him alone. But we carry the cost, we know our sins. And we live lightly holding the things of this world. You know, the church has been talking a lot lately about moving into a new era, a new mandate. And that may well mean that we do things differently. It might mean new structures, new plans, new agendas. But if you read revival history, whenever God does anything new, do you know what God does? He just reinvigorates the old That's what God does. Revival always begins with the basics of the gospel rising up in the hearts of believers in a new way. Revival always begins in the church. And I wonder whether part of this new era, part of this new beginning, is that we need to take these things and we need to take them to a new place in our lives. We need to rest on him with more rigor and faith than we have ever done before. We need to cut out sin from our life in a way that is sacrificial and serious. We need to look to Jesus with unrivaled wonder at who he is and what he has done for us. And then out of that place, what could God do with the people who are living like that? I wonder if we could just close our eyes for a minute as we finish. The way the Spirit often works is that he gently speaks and he provokes and he challenges and we're all in different places and we all have different things. We all have different challenges. I wonder whether this morning, is there one thing, is there just one thing in all that's been said this morning where you have felt the prompting of the Spirit? Is there one area of your life where you say, this is going to be my new beginning? It might be about faith and assurance. It might just be to know that you are loved by God. It might be that you have been provoked to just be in wonder again. At the sacrifice of Jesus, and there really couldn't be a better place to be than that. Maybe you've been provoked that this is a stake in the ground for saying, I am going to pursue holiness in a new way. My linkage to the world needs to be severed, that I want to live my life like a pilgrim. Let me just have a moment of silence. What is the Spirit saying to you today? What is your takeaway from this morning? What do you need to do? What do you need to be for this message to penetrate your heart and your life and your will and your mind and your action? Father, I just want to pray for everybody here today. And we want to lift up Jesus and we want to make much of him. We glorify the Savior, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the offering. And because he has given so much for us and because he has laid down his life. Father, we want to be those who lay down our lives for you. Provoke us, speak to us change us that we might be instigators of something new but actually of something old in jesus name amen